centennial. What, what, what did you say, sir? A centennial. Heavens, sir. A centennial. Why, it's the best idea I ever Wonderful, had. Wonderful, sir. What was that he said? Did he say centennial? I didn't hear what he said, sir. I was so busy. Did he say centennial? Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Danger Room, the X-Men Comics Commentary Podcast. My name is Adam. My name is Jeremy. And we're here to discuss the July 1969 issue of X-Men, number 58, titled Mission Murder. Adam? Yes. <laughs> Big news. What's that? There's a new element on this cover, and I want you to identify what it is. One of the things on this cover is not like any other issue we've read thus far. Is it the, the fact that there are no lines on Havoc? Mm, no, but that's a technique that we discussed last issue. It's called color holding, and apparently this issue is miscolored. Oh, really? Oh, so it's not supposed to be orange. Havoc is supposed to be. Oh, I'm sorry. The the mysterious man on the cover of this comic book, whom we don't know who it is. It says on the cover, it's or the man called Havoc. Oh, okay. I think we can. <laughs> okay, so this Havoc man is not supposed to be orange. He's supposed to be maybe black or. I think it was supposed to be blue or something like that, but I, I know orange is a mistake. I think it looks cool. What do you think? I, I, I think orange is fine. I mean, the colors don't really matter. Had you have not told me that, I would have never thought that this was a mistake. I mean, it just looks like there's uh-huh. this menacing guy in the foreground ready to blow some people up. And orange is a natural color for a man who wants to blow things up. Yeah, that's true. Are you perhaps referring to the trademark? No, but that's a little bit different. I believe that's a that's a new element of this cover. Hmm. Well, it's always been approved by the comics code. Yeah, yes, it has. Um, but they raised the price. They rose the price from twelve cents to fifteen cents, and that's the big <laughs> change. Didn't the issue start out at ten cents, or the the series start out at ten cents, and we missed the the raise from ten to twelve? You're gonna make me look, aren't you? A near pristine copy of 1963's X-Men number one went for over $492,000, and its cover price, 12 cents. I guess you're right. That was an article written in July 26, uh, 2012, so it's actually relevant, too. So there you go. It's the first price change for the X-Men. Now, I think we may have pointed this out uh, earlier, uh, or I may have read this elsewhere, but the price remained 12 cents on this book for so many years uh, when inflation would have dictated otherwise, meaning oh, yeah. the price of milk and gas at the same time as this comic book had uh, gone up just due to inflation. But what they had been doing in order to keep the price down was scaling back on pages. I can't hmm. remember. The original X-Men was... Uh, X-Men number one was many more pages than X-Men number 57. I did notice the page number uh, change, but I, I, did, I never knew why. Yeah, well, there you go. It's 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 hard to imagine like three cents, a three cents difference being like a major thing. But I guess it's nineteen sixty. Back in those days, it was it was like a dollar. Yeah, we get three cents more value this issue, everybody. That's true. There <laughs> there is a difference with this issue than the last issue. But and adjusted for inflation, it's got to be around a dollar, right? Don't know. Okay. I guess we should also say the X-Men are behind the orange man called Havoc, and they are very scared, and they are trying to get out of a bubble, it looks like. Yeah, they're trapped in a dome, yeah. see-through dome. It's kind of like one of those um, snow globes, like a very large snow globe. Yes, agreed. So, 
When we last left Iceman and Beast, they were in the apartment watching TV and noticing that um, a Trask was back in the news activating a new line of Sentinels. And we saw it from the perspective of a Sentinel who was looking into the apartment window. And now this book opens up with the Sentinel barging in from the view we just saw it. Bobby, something smashing through the wall, says Beast, grasping me with steely tendrils. Iceman ices up, and we note that uh, Stan Lee presents a fully fantasy by Roy Thomas scripter, Neil Adams artist, inked by Tom Palmer, lettered by Artie Simic, and colored by no one. Do you think that they put the full-length fantasy in here because there is no more origin tales? That's what I was referring to with that mm. for that extra three cents. Yeah. So this means that we don't get a Marvel Girl origin. It'll come someday. Don't you worry. (laughs) All right. On the next page, uh, a very cool page. Holy crap, we get a two-page sort of spread where all the panels are diagonal, and this is intense. Oh, it is a two-page spread, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) I can't really tell on on, on my uh, device of reading, but yeah. This is totally a two-page spread. If I was an X-Men reader and I first saw this, like, for the first time, and I was only reading X-Men, because I'm sure this is done in other comics, but I would have been like, whoa! To me, this is like horror fans for the first time watching the original Dawn of the Dead and being like, oh my god, this is amazing. Because this is very radically different than what we're used to. It's breaking the mold of comic books. Let me try to describe what's going on. We've got kind of an alternating paneling on two pages of uh, Beast and Iceman fighting a sentinel. But meanwhile, in the background of each one of these little diagonals is somebody on television. I believe it's uh, Larry Trask, who is kind of talking about the origin of the Sentinels, how his father was killed, and the X-Men were the murderers, and how they've got to stop them. It conveys action off this page. Yeah, Iceman blasts the Sentinel with ice who bursts out of it as, you know, as is, as is usual. Iceman attempts to escape using an ice slide, but then just as the TV uh, is explaining that these Sentinels have the powers to adapt to mutant powers by immediately finding their weakness, and he refers to cold, will be responded with scalding, shattering steam. The Sentinel blasts Iceman with a blast of steam. But not before Iceman does his very best Silver Surfer impression. That is true. (laughs) (laughs) This ice slide is very Silver Server-esque. But yes, he's taken out with a blast of steam. Beast tackles him, tackles one of the Sentinels, I believe, from the back, as a Sentinel would do. I think there's only one Sentinel here. Yeah, you're right. Number eight. Number eight. And so the Sentinel refocuses his attention on Beast, uh, allowing Iceman to kind of reorient himself. And we get an interesting notation here that the interviewer who is interviewing uh, Larry Trask asks, how can we know that the Sentinels will not rebel against humanity again? So everybody knows that the Sentinels are a bad idea. But Larry Trask says only the X-Men's trickery ever made it appear that they did, which leads me to believe that Larry Trask is insane. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Uh, but he also says that uh, he's got a built-in fail-safe, and that fail-safe is that he can take control of the Sentinel. 
And so apparently this is all happening on television, this conversation. And he says that he, he will illustrate. And so he then takes control of the Sentinel that is fighting Beast and Iceman. Are you sure? How do you know that? Well, he says, I can assume personal remote control of any Sentinel to illustrate dot, dot, dot. And we go to the next panel where it says, three mutants form on my left. I realize that logically that's what's happening based on these panels, but there is absolutely nothing to indicate that Larry Trask is in charge of the Sentinel. I think it's inferred. I know it's inferred, but there's really there's really nothing else. Well, all right. In my world, Larry Trask took 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 control of this, and, and, and here's further proof. Um, he says, three mutant forms on my left, and it's three Icemen, right? I don't know if we've established this yet, but later on in this comic, we'll establish that the Sentinels have mutant-detecting abilities. So, if the Sentinel was left to its own devices, he would be like, I don't know what those three forms are, but they are not mutants, so I will ignore them. Because as we find out in the continuing panels, um, Beast is convinced that one of these three ice images is actually Iceman, but it turns out that all three of them are fake, and Iceman is off in a different room trying to escape. It's an interesting theory. That's my theory. And it fits nicely with uh, Larry's illustration. I was going to chalk it up to uh, the Sentinel talking smarter and kind of being a a Mm wise-ass, but he's a wise-ass in the thing above. In fact... Uh, Beast says, kindly inform friend Task that he's out of his condominium uh, next time all you mutant haters gather for group therapy. To which the Sentinel replies, you yourself may so inform him, mutant, for you shall be there at group therapy. It's bizarre. I don't like Sentinels that have witty repartee. Yes, the Sentinel should be uh, menacing and more stick to the facts. Like, I'm a Sentinel, you're a mutant, I am programmed to kill you period. <laughs> that's it. But anyways, okay, so that's that's just my theory. Maybe I'm I'm wrong, but I don't think I'm wrong. So it's been implied that this is the first time Beast and uh, Iceman have been here at Cyclops' secret apartment. Yes. Yet Bobby Drake is going to a box labeled Scott Summers, New York, New York, and he seems to know exactly what's in it. Ah, here's the little rascal I wanted. Hey, Beast, catch... It's Sykes' miniature TV sender to use when you get loose. Oh, because he's kind of tied up by the mutant's tendrils still. if I'm ever unfettered. Iceman blasts the steel cable holding Beast, and Beast is able to punch it since it's now brittle. And it shatters. And Iceman tells Beast, get out of here. Nobody's going to find Lorna if we both get caught, and I can hold this guy off. So Beast hightails it, feeling pretty bad about it. Why should Iceman be the one to sacrifice himself? He was the youngest of the X-Men, and I'm the oldest. Oh, and strangely, Beast takes the time to throw a vase at the TV on his way out. He does. So I'll vacate the premises after the TV medium gets my message. (laughs) Seems kind of unnecessary. It's not two-way communication, Beast, but yeah. So so first of all, Cyclops' apartment has a torn-down wall, and now it has a broken TV, which was completely unnecessary. He takes off, and uh, we get a little splash of him bounding his way out of the apartment and then changing into his civilian togs. Oh, he gives a great line. Life was so much simpler when Professor X was alive to think for us. (laughs) I forgot about that. (laughs) Yes. 
It's at this point that Hank notices that the Sentinel is flying off with Bobby. So apparently the ice or the Sentinel is able to overpower Iceman. And Beast notes that uh, I guess one mutant was enough to fill its murderous qu- uh, quota. And so off he goes. A few minutes later and half a world away. Are these guys all still in Egypt? Yep. Okay. They're still looking for Alex, who we know was kidnapped by a sentinel. It kind of looks like Jean Grey's like sunbathing or, or waiting for somebody to come <laughs> around with like a drink with an f- umbrella in it or something. She's just lounging there. I'm not sure why she's lying down, but presumably they just changed into their civilian clothes. Do you think they did it first? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> oh, I think Cyclops would have fainted. <laughs> uh, what are you doing, Marvel? Uh. <laughs> They've changed into their civilian clothes. Uh, Angel comes back and asks them why, and I don't know that they actually get an answer for why they've changed. They Yeah, they don't really say why, but it's kind of implied that the reason is because they're getting a report from Hank and that they need to go back to the United States oh, okay. now. Over the um, teletransmitter or whatever it was? Uh, what did Bobby call it? The TV sender? Yes, the TV sender. Well-named device. So they're going to go back to the States, but um, Angel says that he would, he'll he go and fly to the States now. Yeah, he's, that's just stupid. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Cyclops says, don't be a fool. You've never made a transatlantic flight before. And Iceman or uh, Angel's just like, no, I'm I'm gonna do it. I'm I'm flying back now because I don't have the patience. I I want to know what happened to their Avengers car. Didn't they give the Avengers car to Beast and Iceman to fly back to the states? Oh yes, yeah. you're right. So, while they wandered around the desert looking for Alex, so the plan here is that they're going to go back to New York and leave Alex in Egypt because they don't know that Alex has been captured by the Sentinel. Correct. Right. Okay. And so Beast says, hurry, get here soon. I've got to go get Iceman. Goodbye. This is when Angel just loses his mind. (laughs) He says he knows it's a crazy world and you've got to do unto others, but do it first. And then he takes off and leaves. He says, jet home? Sorry, little buddies. That's not my style. Not for a Joe who used to be called... The Avenging Angel, tying it all back to his origin tale. So it looked like they were in the middle of the desert, Cyclops, <laughs> Jean Grey, and Angel. Yeah. Angel takes off, leaving the two of them having to walk back to an airport. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. That's that's tough. Mm-hmm. We go back to um, New York, and this is the judge, the friend of Larry Trask, who was on television with him earlier who is kind of describing to Larry the public's sentiment on mutants, uh, that that the public's not necessarily convinced that all mutants are evil, so we might have to kind of rethink what they're doing. In fact, he's having second thoughts himself, he admits. And as for the X-Men that your Sentinels captured... Oh, he's perfectly all right, Judge Chalmers, says Larry. The reporters can talk to him after I've rendered him harmless. They'll see for themselves the true depth of mutant depravity. He's in a laboratory with Iceman and a tube filled with steam and Sentinel number nine, who is apparently his personal Sentinel behind him. And so he orders the Sentinel to release the mutant. 
And he does, and it's at this point that it's Iceman we discover, and he takes off to presumably get Larry Trask. Yeah, he goes straight into action. He tries to ice up, but his powers are muted. Yeah, apparently the steam bath, as it was so crudely put, was especially designed to rob him of his powers for a period of four hours. (laughs) Not about four hours or close to four hours, but four hours. Well, they calculated based on Iceman's physiology. He did a lot of studying. (laughs) Well, the man weighs about 150 pounds. He's 19 years old. I think that this amount of steam will render him four hours. So he also says that a hidden movie camera just recorded how he attacked him the moment he was released, and his own violent actions will condemn him in the eyes of the world. It's a terrible plot. I'm chalking this up to him being insane. Oh, okay, okay. That would make sense. I mean, I don't know if you if if it is just terrible plotting, but I'm I'm going to chalk it up to his being insane. I I want to believe that. I want to believe that this was purposely written to kind of show us that he's not quite all there. There's more evidence to support it coming up, so I'm I'm gonna stick with it. Okay, I agree. All right, all right. You shall pay. Three years ago, he swore the X Men would pay for the father's death. Well, there's one more kind of calling back, like an actual time frame. I know it doesn't matter anymore, but still <laughs> someone should make a map of all these call outs of actual time and see how much time has actually transpired in the marvel universe that would actually be fascinating but because it would probably be like 1963 to 1967 would probably be exactly three years and then mm-hmm. 19 i don't know let's say like 1970 to 1984 would probably be like six months <laughs> 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 you know and then that'd be an interesting thing to to put the marvel universe over a real-time map yeah, based on like references yeah. to time in in, in the various comics. issues, and every now and then they'll show a president, like a modern president, and they're like, "Oh, well, you got to go back to the, you know, it's so, George Bush is in this comic, so it's it's a '90s issue." Yeah, it's probably a little nerdy, but whatever. Somebody do it. It would be fascinating, and and it would be popular too. I mean, that's where you could make your name off of. You're the guy that did that timeline. Somebody do that and post it to the Danger Room's Facebook page. Yeah. And I will click the like button. I would click it too, but we can't click it twice. (laughs) So then uh, somebody, I guess maybe a sentinel, throws Iceman into a cell. With, as it turns out, a newly minted costumed Alex Summers. He is wearing the classic Havoc suit, the Havoc suit that he'll wear for, I don't know, probably two or three decades. It's a pretty interesting costume. It's all black with some concentric circles in the middle and some hoops on the top for a helmet. Yeah, I've never really understood, like, the headpiece, I guess, in this issue we'll discover what the headpiece's function is for, but I'm curious why he keeps it, because it's kind of goofy looking. The headpiece is goofy looking, but I like the idea of the costume. Um, It's very simple and... Even when he's turned to the side, the circle in the middle kind of follows. So it's it's always just kind of like, it's almost as if it's not a part of the costume, but it's kind of following the costume kind of on the outside of it or something. The circle is always facing us. Yeah, exactly. That's that's what I was trying to say. Yeah. Which, well, one might say that's just lazy perspective, but I, I think it's just kind of a, I don't know, it's an unreal effect and it's it's really neat. I like it. I like it a lot. 
there. I do too, right? And I think it was definitely done on purpose. So I don't, I don't think it was lazy. No, no, no. I, I would agree with you. But I think it's on, on first glance, somebody would be like, why? That doesn't make any sense. They uh, introduce themselves or reintroduce themselves, I guess. And uh, it's at this point that Alex says that he is um, Scott's own baby brother with a code name that Larry Trask gave him, a guy called Havoc. Now, that would be a really good trivia question. (laughs) Who gave Havoc his name? I had no idea. I never knew that. I did not either. And I, I, I didn't even really know that the origin of his costume was from Larry Trosk either. So there you go. Bunch of good stuff. Also behind him is a green-haired mutant who it turns out is Lorna Dane. And she's unconscious. Iceman jumps on the table and begins uh, mounting her feverishly. <laughs> <laughs> like a dog in heat. It's really quite gross. It doesn't help that Iceman is shirtless. <laughs> and his underwear. Lorna! Lorna! <laughs> Oh, Lorna. Uh, Havoc notices that, oh, you guys know each other. And it looks like there's some more than just friendship going on here. It's like awkward. (laughs) Ah, Maybe I'll just go into this other corner over here. (laughs) Like a third wheel. Bobby asks Havoc if the suit is taking away Havoc's powers. And Havoc says, no, that the concentric circles measure his energy output. And they let him know when to cool down so that he doesn't smash the walls like eggshells, which I don't really get. Presumably he could smash the walls like eggshells? Yeah, yeah. Like, it's it's one of those tropes from TV where if your heart rate gets above uh, a certain number, your your mutant power will explode. It's like speed. If the bus goes above or below or whatever, 60 miles per hour, something bad happens. Exactly. He he does have uh, control of his power, and apparently he also has a power meter built onto his chest. But he is unable to use his powers because he made a deal with Trask. And that's when Bobby gets mad. Calls him a coward. Lorna says, no, Bobby, he did it for my sake. Oh, she's awake now. <laughs> she was unconscious two panels ago. Now she's awake. Yeah, maybe this further leads into Trask's craziness because the deal is I'm going to give you a suit. I'm going to give you a name. I'm not going to tell you that you can't use your power, but if you do use your power, then I'm going to kill some of your friends. Not even her friends, just this guy or this girl that he doesn't know. Yeah, just this girl that you don't know. I will kill her if you use your power. So there, just don't use your power. (laughs) And so he promises not to use his power until a sentinel opens up uh, the the prison doors and pulls Lorna away, at which point Havoc's concentric circles get larger and larger. Yeah, we get to see the first use of his powers under this new suit. Let the girl go, sentinel, your leader promised me. So Tress word doesn't mean anything. Well, mine does. Let her go! This display of power is what I remember from when I first started buying comics in the late 80s. It's pretty neat. Yeah, you know, more concentric circles, some of those little black bubbles coming out of his fingers, and then, yeah, a bunch of flashing all around the whole thing. And the sentinel is wrecked. Apparently these are (laughs) neo-sentinels. And so Trask says, uh, a neo-sentinel wrecked by a mutant. I wouldn't have believed it possible. Why not? You left a fully powered mutant in your jail cell. And then sent a sentinel into that jail cell to break your own promise. What did you expect? 
Perhaps you didn't realize the the extent of Alex's powers. He built him a suit <laughs> that would uh, display concentric display of how much power he had in him. I don't know. And let me ask you this. Okay, so the concentric circles show, uh, you know, when his power is getting higher and higher, what's Alex supposed to do with that power? He can't, like, quell it himself, can he? Well, it's it's exactly like like I'm saying. It's like a power meter. When the concentric circles get high, he knows that he has to start meditating. Ah, uh, okay. Calm down my heartbreak. <laughs> <laughs> Larry Trask walks into the room behind his destroyed sentinel, pushes a button on his remote control, which activates the jewel in Havoc's headpiece that doesn't really knock him out, but knocks him to his knees. It shrinks those concentric circles down to nothing. Oh, yeah, you're right. He's now charged to repel the cosmic rays which empower him. What I'm understanding, and perhaps this is wrong, but it seems like cosmic rays are everywhere, and Alex just kind of sucks them in. Yes. Cosmic rays, as I understand them, are the sun's radiations, and it could be the sun radiating off of the moon, or it could be direct sunlight. Those, those would be cosmic rays as I understand it. Alex is pretty upset about this. He he says, if I, if I fall, the living monolith walks again. Remember him? I do. Let me ask you this, though, Adam. If he has this headpiece with the jewel on it and the wavy headpiece thing, and its sole purpose is for Larry Trask's remote control, why does he keep it afterward? <laughs> he He really likes it. <laughs> Nostalgia. Remember that time... He he really thinks it's a cool costume. He's like, whoa, check out my ruby-jeweled ring hat. Everybody else is like, don't you, isn't that jewel kind of a symbol of the time that Larry Trask had domination over you and your powers? He's like, nah, but it completes the suit, you know. <laughs> it's so neat, though. <laughs> All right. So he mentions the, the living monolith will walk again, and Larry Trask bursts out in uproarious laughter and says, the living monolith... Did you say living monolith? And then we flip. We cut to the television show talking about various mutants being captured by sentinels and uh, it being somewhat controversial. And then we cut to a room where the, the archaeologist, formerly known as the living pharaoh, formerly known as the living monolith, is having some sort of board meeting. <laughs> Sure. Uh, I guess he's trying to convince the police, the international police, to punish the X-Men. So as he's talking during this board meeting, uh, one of his business partners asks why he's so pale. And in fact, because Alex is not able to connect with the cosmic rays, Professor Abdul, as his actual name is, begins turning into the living Manilov. And he's like, fools, don't you see I no longer need you? I'll need no one when my transformation is complete. No one! To which a uh, a sentinel busts into the room and is like, then you shall not complete it, mutant. Mm-mm, no, sir. Not <laughs> gonna happen. The living monolith, or the almost living monolith, who is probably tripled in size and is now naked, is spattered with some sentinel juice <laughs> that uh, <laughs> covers his whole body and... Uh, this liquid adhesive will keep all cosmic rays from you. And then he shrinks. Yep. Hopefully he suffocates and dies because I'm kind of sick of this guy. But I think it's kind of neat. Not neat so much, but 
it's nice that people are paying attention. It seems to me that in earlier issues of the X-Men, they wouldn't have referred back to a character like this. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting segue. What, what, whatever did happen to the living Pharaoh? Yeah. I have a question then. When Alex Summers' mutant powers hadn't yet manifested, was there like a symbiotic relationship between him and the living Pharaoh? Or should we just stop talking about that because that storyline made no sense? <laughs> uh, I, I think just because his mutant powers weren't in existence that this uh, balance was not yet in existence. Okay, so we never really truly found out why the living pharaoh tried to kill Alex three times before then turning into the living monolith? No, it, it, no. Okay, so let's, <laughs> we'll move on. So he shrinks down to this, he, he shrinks down to a very small size. He's like the size of like, he goes up to the sentinel's knees now. I think this is normal size. Oh no, if you look at the... We have the same problem with sentinel sizing. It's not as bad as in the sentinel first appearance, but a couple pages, uh, Larry Trask went up to the sentinel's groin. You're right. Well, I think that's a perspective shot. In another page, he's he's taller than that, and he's like half the size of the sentinel. You're talking about page nine, and in page nine, I would say that sentinel number nine is further off in the background than it actually looks in the picture. If you look at page, <laughs> excuse me, eleven, the sentinel coming through the jail cell or the prison cell, uh, his head is like half the size of um, the height of Alex. Right. I think that the sentinels are quite tall, but I believe that you are right. There's some perspective issues. Well, if you go back to page nine, when the sentinel picks up Bobby, his head is the same size as Bobby practically. Yeah, we got some sizing and perspective issues here. Right. It's not as bad as that old issue. That's what they do. Yeah, they grow and shrink. The living monolith has been killed. Let's never speak of him again. Moving on. <laughs> uh, there's another person on television who's talking about uh, an incident that's going on. Some sentinels have been sighted heading overseas, presumably tackling another mutant. And it's actually, it turns out to be Angel that they're flying against. There's two sentinels who are flying to capture Angel. Angel tries to outmaneuver the Sentinels, but he realizes that since he's been flying across the Atlantic Ocean for hours, he's a little tired. Somehow he thinks that if he can just make it to the heavy cloud bank, he'll be okay. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why, but... Apparently the Sentinels also have some maneuverability, so they're able to catch up with him, and they throw a metallic net around him. To which Angel says, I was so close, so close. Look at look at the drawing. He was literally like two feet away from that cloud <laughs> bank. It just so happens that the X-Men are on, an, on a flight parallel to Angel being captured by the Sentinels. Right, which is a big time issue. <laughs> it's either a time issue or it just shows how slow Angel actually is and that maybe Cyclops was right. Exactly, which which defeats the whole purpose of Angel having done this in the first place. I'm going to fly back because it'll take me less time to get back, but actually, no. Yeah. yeah. I guess we've got, who do we have? We have Cyclops and Marvel Girl. That's it at this point. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, they're on the airplane. Above JFK Airport, apparently. Mm-hmm. So they're almost in um, in the United States. So, I mean, if Angel's plan would have worked, he would have landed and he would have been, he would have like passed out from exhaustion. And then Cyclops and Marvel <laughs> Girl would have picked him up and been like, 
Oh, Angel. I think they actually would have got there before him. Well, yeah. yeah. Just barely. So Marvel Girl asks, uh, what do we do, Scott? Cyclops says, the hardest thing of all, Gene, nothing. I don't know why she doesn't mentally contact Angel and say, hey, we're in the plane nearby. We told you so. <laughs> Next time you should listen to us. <laughs> this is why the professor didn't make you the leader of the team. Because you come up with stupid ideas like flying across the ocean. You dummy. One of the mutants that has uh, got Angel trapped detects mutant presidents, uh, possibly in that plane near, that's nearby. Angel is worried about Scott and Jean, who he assumes that it is. We were programmed only to capture one mutant, number eight, says number A3. Proceed to Station Alpha so they don't go after the plane. Yeah, it's kind of weird that the robots would be asking this question. I mean, if you are programmed to do something, then you would just do it, you know? Right. <laughs> then that's it. So you wouldn't ask the question. Well, you know, they're throwing logic into it. Is it logical yeah. to investigate? My logic is overriding my directive. Meanwhile, somewhere else, a sentinel barges into what looks like the secret hideout of Magneto and Mesmero. Oh, sorry, Mesmero. Whoa. Magneto is back, everybody. Do you think they're still at the City of Mutants? He's after me, Mesmero. You fool, says Magneto. Delay him where I prepare a defense. At, at first glance, you're like, well, why doesn't Magneto just tear him apart with his magnetic powers? And right. if he's not going to do that, why is Mesmero going to use the power of illusion against a robot? That makes no sense. Which totally doesn't work. Yeah, none but of it he works. He seems immune to my mental bombardment. Save me, Magneto, save me. We get a we get a rear shot of Mesmero. As he runs uh, towards Magneto, jumps behind Magneto and hides and says, why are you just standing there so silent? Magneto has apparently frozen. Yes, petrified with fear, perhaps. Or could it be something else? <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. The Sentinel asks, why do you seek refuge behind a mere machine? Machine? What do you m m m No! And the Sentinel, I guess, blasts Magneto, who, it turns out, is a robot. Mesmero says, my master was only a robot? <laughs> All of these lonely months? <laughs> the real Magneto was never my ally against the X-Men. Asterisk, issue 49 to 52. So, What? All these lonely months, I served a creature of steel and synthetics. I, I thought I was lonely, but it turns out I was super lonely. <laughs> Larry Trask has been watching this on a video screen and comments that Magneto has temporarily escaped him, but that's okay. Because he had an android doing his dirty work. The implication is that Magneto sent an android in disguised as himself. Well, I want to just, this, we can't just overlook this here. I mean, what this means is that... Yeah, it's a big thing. In issue 49 to 52, there was a robot who was posing as Lorna Dane's father and as Magneto. Yep. That's crazy. Did Magneto ever use any magnetic powers or was there like a, oh, I'm so weak, I can't use my powers yet? There's no reason why Magneto couldn't have built a robot that knows how to use magnetic powers. Oh, that's a little far-fetched, Adam. <laughs> but I think he was weak. Wasn't he weak after... After Cyclops brought the ceiling down and crippled him temporarily, I thought he wasn't able to use his powers. I don't know that he had. Oh, I don't. I don't recall. I don't remember him using his powers at all. But because I think he like walked in, and he was like, "I'm your father," 
but then like and then everyone's like oh my god magneto you're alive but i don't recall him ever using a power to you know i think he kept sending his henchmen or mesmero's henchmen against the x-men the mutants that they created in san francisco no he definitely uses his powers i'm flipping back now okay what does he do to use his powers he throws all these metal chunks, uh, a tidal wave of scrap iron at uh, Marvel Girl's legs. Oh, yeah, yeah. He okay. wraps up Angel in contracting coils of steel cable. Okay, I remember now. So Magneto built a robot that possessed Magneto's powers. Well, we don't know that it was Magneto. We just think the um, that uh, Larry Trask thinks it's Magneto. Somebody built a robot to mirror Magneto and Magneto's powers. Indeed. So is Magneto, since, I mean, the last time then we saw a living, breathing, fleshy Magneto was when he was falling his death, falling to his death towards the rocks. Is that correct? Magneto, therefore, is still dead. Okay. Thank God. My world was spinning there for about 20 issues. <laughs> Going nuts. Although, I don't know, because Larry Trask seems to think that Magneto's alive. But does he know that Magneto died on the rocks? I don't know. He doesn't know that the X-Men fought the Avengers. Okay, well, uh, anyhow, he is uh, signaling Judge Chalmers. He is being signaled that Judge Chalmers is approaching. Oh, wait, there's an important thing, though. Oh, what happens? The Sentinel says, we have detected another mutant in this vicinity, O leader. Oh, right. But something prevents us from pinpointing the mutant for the present, dot, dot, dot. Well, Larry says, it might be the escaped beast, perhaps nosing about. Where are they? Beast is in the city. Well, he, well, what he's saying is he doesn't know where Beast is. Okay. In other words, he doesn't know who, who this Sentinel is detecting, but maybe it's Beast. In the next pan or in the next page, we learn that this base is in a hollowed-out mountain. <laughs> right. Judge Chalmers arrives in a jet, flown by a, a Sentinel. It looks like. Apparently, most of this was the Sentinels uh, doing, building all of this stuff. Uh, they have their own built-in system of logic. The logic told him that a base such as this would be useful, so here it is. And he wonders how the public phase of the war with the mutants is going. Judge Chalmers says that it's not going very easy, my boy. Many people are becoming uncertain of the justice of the cause, including himself. You're breaking a lot of civil rights here, kiddo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What about due process and all that sort of stuff? But uh, uh, let's not forget that Larry Trask has film footage that will prove it, sir. Here's the first time that I noticed that Larry Trask is wearing a medallion and some sort of, I don't know, metal necklace or leather. I don't know what it is. I think it's a metal harness for his goofy little sentinel controlling helmet. But yeah, it's okay. it's yeah. a it's a very costume like shirt. It definitely has some elements that are not normal. He's crazy. <laughs> Cuckoo. Judge Chalmers for the first time notices how the mutants are being kept in suspended animation in tubes. Which kind of freaks him out. That's not very humane, he says. Did you ever watch Heroes? Yeah, I watched the first three seasons and then you you were like this is dumb and you stopped watching it right yep <laughs> okay so although i should have i wish i'd realized that earlier <laughs> yeah you wasted you wasted two seasons going it's, it's gonna get better i just know it is why isn't this getting better come on it used to be so good i really want to know what's gonna happen to these characters based on how good season one was but 
but this is bad. <laughs> Why is it so bad? Next next episode's going to pick it up. I just know it. I believe in season three they were storing the super powered people in tubes, weren't they? Oh, really? I think I so. I don't remember that. Yeah, I don't really either. It's kind of unmemorable, but. Well, Judge Chalmers is upset that it's not very humane, to which Larry Trask responds, humane? How can one be humane to monsters that aren't even human? It's a good point. It's a good point. If you go soft on me, try to coddle the assassins who killed my father, my sentinels will carry on the fight alone. Calm down, lad. Your father was a strong-willed man, but a fair one. He wouldn't have condemned anyone without hearing both sides, which is a load of crap. Didn't we read the issue in which he's like, all <laughs> mutants are evil and my sentinels are going to get them? Perhaps this is more for those people who are less familiar with those issues. I don't know. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Let's try to insert some dimensions into Bolivar Trask. That didn't exist. Well, all right. <laughs> Anyways, Larry turns his Vizzy screen on and observes Beast and... Cyclops and Marvel Girl. Okay. How did they meet up with one another? All right, Scott, I waited for you, says Beast, despite the fact that the last time we saw Beast, he says, I'm off to find Iceman. <laughs> Beast has changed his opinion. Why are they scaling a mountain? That I don't know. Because when I first saw this panel, I'm like, oh, they found the mountain of the Sentinel hideout and they're about to attack. But I, I think they're at the mansion. Beast says ship and mini Cerebro still intact. Oh, so maybe they're not at the mansion. That that thing in the background's kind of okay. So that's the ship in the background. Doesn't explain why they're scaling a wall. But anyways, and, and why Marvel Girl's just not levitating them. But anyways, she is levitating herself. She is, and she also has because she has had no other lines in this comic book except for worrying about <laughs> Angel. Says Scott, please be careful donning your visor. If you open your eyes, even a hair's breadth. Do you think somebody says something every time Cyclops puts on his visor? you think they would be used to this. It would be like old hat by now. But no, even Cyclops is like, no one knows the danger better than I do, Gene. I'd be like, Scott, don't point those things at me. Could you look somewhere <laughs> else while you change your glasses? You're freaking me out. It's like uh, aiming a uh, pistol at somebody. Loaded or unloaded, it's still not right. At this point, Larry Trask starts to explain why his he, he starts to talk about his medallion i swear by my medallion that same medallion which was once my mother's and then he has a flashback where his father gives him the medallion and says i want you to promise you will never remove this medallion as long as you live swear boy swear i swear papa larry is also crying so ever since that day i've That noise. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Adam, yeah, you missed your cue. Banshee shows up. That's pretty exciting. Out of nowhere, Banshee shows up, and uh, I think he explodes a sentinel, or he definitely hurts a sentinel. Yeah, he pops like their eardrums or something. The sentinel says, in his native land, he surrendered to me without a fight, but now he... Oh, I see. So the sentinels captured the Banshee, and he gave up, but then he was just he was just waiting. He was playing possum. Yeah. Yeah. Two other Sentinels come along and make an opposite noise, which takes Banshee out. It's a different frequency that apparently Banshees don't like. This issue is fast-paced, man. And down he goes. Very well done, my Sentinels. And this is where Larry just loses all of his morals and senses and everything. And he says, 
that he knows what he must do, and he commands for his sentinels to destroy all mutants in the area. Destroy them! He also says perhaps the Banshee was the mutant presence that Sixar detected earlier. Mm, that mutant presence is, is coming back into play. Alluding to the unknown mutant. Look at Judge Chalmers' face in this panel. No, you young fool, no! Well, because Larry's pulled the button, the destroy all mutants button, and, and, and Judge Chalmers is kind of like, hey, I don't like him either, but, you know, I'm a judge, and I got to hear what they have to say and give him a fair chance. Easy, boy. Jug, judge Chalmers rips off his medallion and socks uh, Larry upside the head. And this is where I think I agree with you about his craziness, because all of a sudden his facial expressions change and his uh, dialogue changes as well. He's like, oh, it's all right, sir. I was wrong to order even mutants killed. But Judge Chalmers, it doesn't. it's too late. Judge Chalmers says, you don't understand my true purpose. Wait, what is Judge Chalmers' true purpose? His true purpose was to take the medallion off. That was it? Yes. How do you know? As soon as the medallion is off, the Sentinels realize that Larry Trask is a mutant. Yeah, but why does that mean? Why is that Judge Chalmers' true purpose? Because Judge Chalmers knew that Larry Trask was a mutant and wanted Larry to know that he was a mutant so that he wouldn't be so freaking crazy. So by ripping off his medallion, he has basically condemned him to death. Well, sort of. I mean, it's, it's kind of loose logic, but it's 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 interesting. It's it's a twist. It doesn't make any sense because couldn't he have just done that from the get-go? Just been like, "Hey, man, take off your medallion." Well, he could have just said, "Hey, you're a mutant. Chill out." And if you don't believe me, take off your medallion and have a sentinel scan you. Okay, well, it doesn't make any sense. But so yes, it's a it's a it's a twist worthy of M Night Shyamalan. The man who ordered the mutants to be destroyed himself without his medallion is also discovered to be a mutant. Larry tries to countermand his previous orders, but now the Sentinels will not listen to them and grabs him and reveals that the, the, present, the mutant presence that they detected earlier was Larry Trask. But they couldn't identify it because of the medallion. This is a twist worthy of the village where it was it was it was kind of okay but in the end you were a little let down that's what i see here yes <laughs> yeah oh. yeah it's it's not the greatest twist but you know it is this this was a pretty fast paced issue and so i don't know i read this in like a couple minutes it was it was exciting it was an exciting conclusion to an exciting fast paced issue i'm not going to rip on it that bad i'm just going to point out some of the foibles i noticed along the way that's all but i mean overall Pacing-wise, art-wise, melodrama-wise, it's way above what we've been reading in the past. Well, I also feel like like lately we're, we've been getting to that pacing that the X-Men is known for in the Chris Claremont years where we're now just telling a long-term story. It's no longer a bunch of small little story arcs and right. one-shots and whatever. Now it's just this big... Like the the living pharaoh bled into the sentinels. It's a serial. Bleed into the next. Yeah, it's changed. It's changed for the better, I think. Yes. The storytelling. Yes, it has. Agreed. Next issue is called Conflagulation. Conflagulation. <laughs> Conflagulation. Confound it. So we got some mail. Yeah, what, did it, what does the email say? We got a letter from Nicholas Hoekstra. 
it's a it's subject is Marvel Girl's voice. Jeremy totally nails Marvel Girl's voice. I don't care how she's been portrayed in TV or movies. Jeremy's impression of a 1960s doll is now and henceforth the voice I will think of for Jean Grey. Wow. Congratulations. It's like you won an award. <laughs> the sad thing is I'm not even really sure which voice he's referring to. But I'll just keep doing what I do and, and hopefully it pleases and I'll continue doing that 60s Marvel Girl impression for you. For our Android friends, you know, we keep saying go on to iTunes and rate us. If you don't have an iPhone or an iPod, it's probably not worth your time to go on to iTunes and do that rating thing. So, you know, do what you can do. That's all we ask. Well, by now, our tweeter has been tweeting our many fine things, so we would like to uh, continue to extend a thanks to... Ed Gibson the third. Thanks, dude. There was a question that was put out, I think it was by you, Adam, as to whether or not we should cover the hidden years. Uh, no, that was put out that, that was put out by Edward. Oh, thank you, Tweeter. It sparked some conversation. There was some people who said, nah, just go right to giant size. And there were some other people that said, no, maybe do a one shot. And then I think there may have even been one person that said, yeah, you should go through the whole series. And so Adam and I have been trying to figure out what we want to do about that because the the problem that we run into is that you could almost go on to the Bendis series now because the Bendis series what takes off from one of these old issues and goes into the future do you cover that and at what point do you cover that then there's also Deadly Genesis which has an element uh, coming up soon do you cover that what do you think Adam I don't know I I really don't know Keep the debates alive, I guess, and and we'll eventually we'll, we'll probably take anything like that the majority says into account, and probably probably end up doing that. Personally, I I feel like the hidden years doesn't feel like continuity to me, continuity to me. Um, my preference is to just go uh, based on year that issues came out rather than timeline. That said, I'm open to whatever the fans want. <laughs> There's so many different things that happen at so many different times and so many different things that they keep adding on that I think if we went through and did everything like that, we would never get to giant size number one. If you tried to hit all of the things like we, you know, we didn't do the minus one issues, but there's all those other issues that kind of like exist. I guess we did the Mitoxo issue, but that was more out of my fancy than anything else. I think we'll just play it by ear and uh, do it as we see fit. You know, whatever... Whatever really interests us, I don't. I don't think we'll go particularly wrong. People seem to want us to do the hidden years, so I'll read the frickin' hidden years. <laughs> well, I've started reading the hidden years, and let me tell you, no, I don't know. I don't have anything to tell about that, but uh, I don't know how to explain it. It seems like it would fit. It would fit in, but uh, it does get canceled after twenty-two issues, so it wasn't that well received. But uh, John Byrne wanted to do the series and had plotted everything out so that it could go like 100 issues before getting to Crackdown. Wow. Yeah, yeah. He had like big grand plans. But Joe Quesada's like, ah, these sales aren't doing very good. You got to wrap it up. And so 22 issues was all there is. Which is just another reason why I think it's not that important, the sales. It, it, you're right, it isn't. Because comic book history is weird because... The issues like Giant Size 1, 94, and on 
aren't built upon the hidden years. The hidden years are built upon everything else that's happened, but try to fit into the continuity. So it's like they don't matter. <laughs> yeah, kind of like episode one, two, and three of Star Wars. <laughs> kind of. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would agree. I would agree with that. Sure. But on the other hand, there is a lot more insight that's added to what just what happened after issue 66. And so that's kind of interesting. But whatever. Yeah, so it sounds like what we'll, we'll end up doing is reading them and then discussing them for an episode. I think you're right. And if it becomes a lively conversation, maybe we'll split it into two. But I think we'll definitely touch upon it. I don't think we're going to do it. I'm pretty sure we won't do an issue-by-issue issue recount of the Hidden Years. Unless, like, an issue really stands out or something like that. Uh, yeah, I, I, I can't imagine that, though. Yeah, me neither. Okay, well, there you go, fans. But since the demand is there, we'll, you know, we'll do whatever you guys tell us to <laughs> within reason. Well, we're not slaves, Adam. No, I, I didn't say we were. Well, why don't you visit us at uh, facebook.com forward slash Danger Room Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Danger Room Go. I'm going to write that down somewhere because now we've got a tweeter <laughs> who's actually going to be tweeting. And so there'll be some things for you to read and it'll be relevant. You can email us at dangerroom at redcapproductions.com or visit us at www.redcapproductions.com forward slash dangerroom. Anything else, Adam? Uh, what about what about classic X-Men? No, nothing else. <laughs> We've already had that discussion, and I'm not sure how I feel about the backstories in classic X-Men. That's a whole other conversation. I think you should have to read them, and I won't read them. <laughs> oh, I'll just be like, oh, and by the way, Adam... Well, that way it'll be, it'll be exciting for me. What you don't know is that what actually happened <laughs> is this thing. Oh, I don't know. That's, but that, I mean, that's like, that's really like the ultimate hidden years because that's all backstory that nothing refers to, but just kind of adds a little bit more information to. You know what I mean? What about Gambit and the externals? What about Gambit and the externals? Are we going to do that? I don't think so. Shouldn't we have done Wolverine Origin by now? Adam, now you're just being ridiculous. All right, uh, until next time, the danger room is closed. And dreadful objects so familiar that mothers shall but smile when they behold their infants quartered with the hands of war. All pity choked with custom of fell deed. And Caesar's spirit, ranging for revenge with Ate by his side, come hot from hell, shall in these confines with a monarch's voice cry, Hell and let's slip the dogs of war. <laughs>